Matthew 27. I'm going to actually start in verse uh, 45. Read verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at, one, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We're getting there. Um, Father, we do right now come under your word. And Lord, I just want to say before you, like I could die a happy man just being able to preach this text today. Um, Lord, would the cross to us be everything? Jesus, would you, um, would you call sons and daughters to glory today, to salvation today? Lord, and for all of us, would we hope only in your cross, only in your finished work, only in your life, which you have taken back up again? Help me now. Would you just protect me and help me to preach your word effectively We know we do have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I just ask that you would take care of him. You are are our warrior God and you are mighty. And so I just trust in you. Uh, So I'd come, would your Holy Spirit be poured out? Uh, We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as I was preparing this message, as I'm preparing this thing, I'm trying to find like the perfect story just the absolute perfect story to draw you guys all in because I want, I want us to like feel this story in our bones, like deep down. So I'm, I'm struggling to figure out, okay, what is that? Like, is it some, is it some Pixar movie? Or is it like, is it this old like uh, Steven Spielberg thing? Or is it like the super arty like uh, Terrence Malick? Like what, what's it going to be? And I was struggling to find something. And I think, I think the reason I was struggling to find something is because honestly, every story, every story is inadequate when it comes to comparing it to this. When it comes to the cross of Christ, there isn't a story, a story that we could look through that lens and could do the cross of Christ justice. And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking what, it, what it's like is it's like seeing just the most beautiful thing in the world um, and then trying to like compare, like compare it with like just a photograph or a replication. So I thought of this. This is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, I had the chance to go to New Zealand um, a couple years ago, and this was Church of the Good Shepherd. It's called. So you sit in church. I mean, our warehouse is pretty. Like, thank you, Lord, for the warehouse. But like, <laughs> right behind you, you have just fjords and mountains just coming up and it was so beautiful but here was like something that was just boggling my mind there's all these tourists going and just grabbing postcards and looking at the postcards for like 10 minutes they're like ah do i want this one do i want this one i'm like what are we doing like it's right here 
Like, why don't we just look at this, right? So let me try to get out it another way. Uh, so J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, he, has a, he has a famous essay called On Fairy Stories. Um, stay with me for a second, okay? I know some of you. I'm like, fairy what? Like, on fairy stories. So uh, the gist is this. The gist that Tolkien, writer of Lord of the Rings, different stuff, you know, uh, is this. He says that every single story that rings true in our hearts, right? Every, every tale of substitution and of sacrifice, every, every single movie or play or even song that tells a story, every single one that you, you go and you see that movie and you walk away somewhere in your heart kind of like hoping, hoping before cynicism kind of creeps in there. Man, like, is this like, maybe life really is like this. Like maybe, maybe life really is like this. He says, the reason, the reason you have that feeling is because God has actually placed eternity in your heart. And deep down, deep down, you can't escape the longing to know the greatest story is actually true. That love does conquer evil. And that, that there is hope and redemption. And that one day a prince like really will slay the dragon and rescue his fair maiden and they will dwell together forever. But sometimes we think that's, that's, just, that's just a fairy tale, though, right? Well, what I'm going to proclaim before you all, and this is for every single one of you. I know some people walked in here like feeling like I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. I'll just suffer through. How did I even get here? And some of us are like used to being, for all of you, what I'm going to proclaim before you is that the cross of Christ is the story you've been longing for. And the best news is that it is actually true. And we can't camp out too long right here, but I need you to know this too. This, this story, it doesn't, it doesn't just begin in Matthew 27. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even just start in Matthew 1, but this story starts right where all good and true things start, right at the very beginning. This is the story of God that has taken place before the creation of anything God determined to save by the cross of Christ. So we'll begin the story. Verse 32, Matthew 27. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, as we come to the cross, the death of Jesus Christ, I want us to feel the shock and the shame and the scandal that we would feel if, if we had been alive during that time. So like today, we, we, like, we wear crosses around our neck. We have all kinds of jewelry. Uh, we put them in our logos. You can go to a Christian bookstore and get like a Precious Moments doll, like hugging the cross, right? Right? You guys never seen those things? You alive today? Okay. We, we see that and we like, and we see that and that makes sense for us. But like, I want us to capture and understand what this would be like. Uh, so Cicero, a Roman uh, a Roman who lived around that time, great orator, said this. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is... What? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The Jewish leaders of the time, the cross was just this, such an abomination uh, because they had equated it for, with a text from Deuteronomy that says, cursed, damned is the man who hangs on a tree. Anyone who would suffer on a cross, that is, they saw a cross the same as a tree, they, they must be damned by God, cursed by God. And that, like, the equivalent today is like, Okay, wearing a necklace with a cross, kind of the equivalent today is like wearing a necklace with an electric chair around it. And you're like, that's really morbid. Yeah, it is. That's what the cross is. Verse 32 through 34. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled him to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So uh, Jesus, to remind us, he already has been flogged. He's, the flesh on his back is torn. It's ripped. He's already been, he stayed up all night being forsaken by everyone and now he's just carrying his cross and he can't even carry the beam. So they get this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to help him do that. And then we come to this point where we see the soldiers offer him some wine mixed with gall. And so we kind of want, like, what, what's going on here? Is this a kind gesture? Don't misread this. This is like a cruel gesture. It is a cruel thing. Wine would be, still is, an intoxicant that um, is going to, if you drink enough of it, it's going to dull some of your senses. So as kind of a concession, they would give wine to some people if they wanted it. But these men, these men had mixed gall 
makes gall in another gospel. We know that there's maybe also myrrh in it. So what's going on here is that you would taste it and it would be so bitter. You're just thirsting and all you want is some relief. And Jesus tastes just enough of it for it to have absolutely no effect on him, but only tastes the bitterness of the cup. And this is also, this is also mind-blowingly a fulfillment of Psalm 69, where David, in the Holy Spirit, wrote this. And it also was a messianic, fulfill, a messianic promise and prophecy. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Matthew teaches us what the cross is doing way more, almost exclusively, by its effects and what immediately happens after, as opposed to just a, some straightforward prose. And it's actually, it's actually stunning right here that this, this is all we get in Matthew about, about Jesus dying on the cross, the actual death there. Like, this is the eternal Son of God, the one by whom all things were created, and in whom all things hold together. He who formed every cell in the universe, who willed into existence a sapling that would one day become a tree. A tree that he himself would be nailed to. The one who thought up into being oxygen, who spoke and it was, is now struggling to just get a gasp of air. The creator of all things being crucified, destroyed by his own creation. And it's only six words. And when he, had, he was crucified, And so they divide his garments among them by casting lots. This too is a messianic fulfillment uh, from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 runs throughout the crucifixion narrative, uh, predicting hundreds of years ago all kinds of things that would take place. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments. Among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And as Jesus, as Jesus, the Son of God, hangs there on the cross, I want us to see the audacity of the people walking by. The people walking by, this is what they say.
verse 38 I'll start in. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You hear the cruel things they say. And I, I, I think the words sum it up so fully. In the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice yell out among the scoffers. But I don't want to just stop there of just referencing a lyric. I want, I, I think we need to see why they're saying the kinds of things they're saying. These are people who are in real pain. And I think, I think they have some failed expectations about God, about maybe what they thought he's promised to do. And it's real easy, it's real easy to just vilify these people and immediately make them inhuman. But let's look what, at what they actually say, because I think there's something here for us. But first they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, like, come down from the cross. They're saying, Jesus, you challenge everything we know about how to be made right with God. You challenge everything we know and how to interact with him. So why are you hanging there right now? Like, why are you there? They're thinking, I don't like what's happening right now. This guy claimed to be God? Like, I don't, I don't get this. I don't like this. It doesn't make sense to me. The kind of God I know, he would never. We, we don't like God's methods. And we see it, and I think even maybe below always our conscious thought, there's something in it. We know God's method always involves death on the front end. I don't like that. There's death involved. But then the chief priests and the scribes, they say to him, they say to him this, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The chief priests and scribes, they wanted a different kind of king. And it's real easy. It is very easy to just vilify them. But these are people under real oppression who thought, when Messiah comes, he will overthrow immediately our earthly oppressors. He will do that. And I think we can sum up their derisions and their vitriol 
by saying they thought they had been promised something from God. Kind of deliverance or healing or kingdom or blessing. And that they, they thought, God, I, I thought you were going to do this. And they look at the cross and they say, God, this isn't lining up. Like, I thought, I thought you were going to do this. I thought you were going to bring healing right now. I thought you were going to come and overthrow all my enemies. Why, why this? Why this right now? And what I want us to ask ourselves before we put them just as villains, we search our own hearts and we ask ourselves, have we put God on trial have we, maybe, maybe it's because of like a really bad teacher you've heard who promised you, you come to Christ and you won't suffer. You, you come to Christ and you'll just, you'll be happy and healthy and you'll get whatever you want. Somebody, somebody just told you, if you be content, then God just gives you what you want. Or, or maybe just in, in our own hopes and desires, which aren't bad, but we've just clung to them so closely. We've said, we've said, God, if you had just been there, or if you had just come through sooner, or if you were really in control, then, then why is this happening right now? really easy to vilify them, but I don't think we're really that different. Something really interesting I came across in verse, in studying is verse 42. Uh, They say, he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. That phrase, and we will believe in him. Uh, so it's, it's, a really, it's a really important phrase throughout the New Testament. Um, and in Greek, it's just pistuo epi, right? Uh, which means, what that means is uh, we will have faith in, we will trust in, we will do that. And you see it all through Paul's letters. You see it all over the place. But what was, what was stunning for me to learn was this is the only place that phrase occurs in the Gospels. And the religious, along with the thieves dying with him, say to him, if you do this, then we'll believe in you. Kind of telling for maybe where their faith really was. If God acts like this, I will do this. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over, over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours of darkness covered the earth. 
I was thinking back as I was reading through this, and uh, I remembered a time that I was playing uh, at lunch in elementary school. Uh, we were playing football, and we're out in the field, and we're just uh, playing whatever game, tackling each other. And uh, a shadow just kind of passed over me, um, and I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then it just got really cold for a second, and then I realized, like, it wasn't just this shadow. It was, like, a huge shadow that was covering, like, the entire field. And I realized what was going on was, like, this eclipse just went past us and covered the field while we were out there. Have you ever, have you ever been in that situation, experienced an eclipse? It just has this kind of, like, bone-chilling effect on you, right? Like, the sun gets blocked out for a moment. And that's what happens here for three hours. Darkness covers the land. As a side note, as a side note, we're not positive if it was an eclipse or what happened, uh, but we can like kind of trust like God could figure out a way to make some darkness cover the land, right? Like, I mean, our faith like begins with God created everything out of nothing, sent his only son who died for us, rose from the dead, and one day he's coming back to make all things new. Too hard to believe maybe some darkness covered the earth? Anyways. Um, But uh, there's darkness covering the land, but that's that's not all that's going on. It's not just, it's not simply a physical thing going on. Something deeper is actually going on here. And in the Old Testament, hell and judgment are much more frequently described as darkness than fire. So we see in Joel, Prophet Joel says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord, that is judgment day, when God comes back to make things right, is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Then we see from the prophet Isaiah, they will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Again, Isaiah says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as, it is, as it's right at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Then we see in the prophet Amos, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. People had just celebrated Passover right before Christ's death. And all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Darkness is a sign of judgment. And it's God's judgment on sin. 
And not only are, are there these major and minor prophetic texts evoking, like that evoke come into our memory when we hear darkness covering the land here, but also God's landmark salvation event of the Old Testament comes, it just, it has to come to mind. If a Jew's there experiencing this right now, they just immediately have to think of this. Whenever someone heard the word salvation, they would think of this one event. And if a Jew was standing there on that day and darkness covered the land, they would just have to think, you know, there was another day where darkness covered the land. God, through the prophet Moses, sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, hey, let my people go. I'm going to take my people out of Egypt. Let them go. And Pharaoh hard-heartedly said, no, I will not do it. And so God eventually said, you know what? I'm going to show myself to be the one true God, rescue my people from their oppressors. I will take them out. And so he started showing his might and his power through different plagues. And continually, Pharaoh said, no, persistently, no, you cannot go. You cannot take them from me. And nearing the climax of the story, in the ninth plague, God made darkness to cover the land. And still, even with God blotting out the sun, Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. He wouldn't listen. And so God sent a destroyer angel to kill every firstborn son in that land. Every delight of a father, every hope of inheritance, every future for the family would be, would be killed unless, unless the people covered their doorpost with the blood of of a sinless, spotless lamb. Then God would pass over them. But now, again, the earth is covered in darkness, and this time, the true firstborn son of God, uncreated, eternal, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he will have the true plague fall upon him. Judgment isn't only falling upon the land. And it's it's not just God's judgment on sin arbitrarily or in general, but God's judgment upon our sin fell on Christ on the cross. Verse 46, he says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what, is, what I want us to see here, because if you've been studying the book of Matthew with us for a while, at least it should do something where we've seen Jesus pray so many times. And almost every single time, what does he say? He says, my father. Jesus, teach us to pray. You pray, our Father. But here in his darkest moment, what does he say? He says, my God. He doesn't call him Father. 
And this isn't to say that the father ceased to be Jesus' father, that he ceased to be the son, but that in some mysterious way, he is really experiencing the forsakenness that sin deserves from God. The wrath, the removal of fellowship he had with God. You see, God, Jesus and the Father forever have existed in the unity of the Spirit. Forever the Father has been a Father loving the Son. Does that blow your mind? It should blow your mind. It's God, but forever, never knowing a day of, of not having loving fellowship. And God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't need some friends. He said, out of the love of my heart, I will make all things and I'll make them good. And we, we rejected God. We said, I want your stuff. I don't want you. I like what you made. I don't like my maker. And we were, we've, been, we've been honestly wondering for thousands of years, for thousands of years, what, what's going to happen? Like, what's going to happen? We rejected God. How's this all going to turn out? Like, I know God has said, like, he's going to do some good things. I know he's promised, but what's going to happen? Well, astonishingly, we actually see in the cross of Christ that it was our rejection of God that drew forth the depths of his love for us, that he would die in our place to suffer the punishment for sin that we have committed. That is what's happening. Jesus here, he's also quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now, we've talked a lot uh, over the past months about how very often when a person quotes a part of a Hebrew scripture, they're evoking the fullness, the full psalm or the full chapter of what they're quoting. Uh, and I've said Psalm 22 does run throughout, the th- is a thread that runs throughout the story, but some people want to jump ahead too quickly because Psalm 22, it is going to end in confidence that God will save, that he will be victorious. But I think Jesus here, God is still his God, but the moment is so bleak and so dark. All he can cry out are these two verses. And he's not yet even at the point of knowing that there's victory. He knows it will come, but he is so suffering in this moment. I don't want us to miss that. This is the darkest moment in all of history. What he's experiencing is what was prophesied about a man that Jews came to call the suffering servant. And we found in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ on the cross. Verse 47 says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. Eli in Aramaic, which Jesus was speaking right here, uh, means my God. Eloi, very similar, would be Elijah. And so they mishear him think, he's calling to Elijah. That's what he must be doing right now. He's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. They give him sour vinegar in his moment of thirst. Again, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 69. And they say, you know what? His greatest hope, his greatest hope has to be right now that he's calling to Elijah. Because Elijah is like one of the pinnacles, like one of the greatest prophets in all the Old Testament. So he must be calling to him. So you know what? If he's a son of God, like, let's see. Let's see if he, like, if Elijah actually comes and saves him. But what they don't know, they don't know, is that the greater Elijah is standing right before them, hanging on the tree. The greatest prophet ever known to man. But he's more than a prophet. It says Jesus yield, he takes a breath, and again he cries out and he yields up his spirit. What I, what I want us to see and remember is this. No one took Jesus' life from him. He is not simply a victim of a corrupt system. He's not. He, he is that, but he's so much more. He is God eternal. And he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He chose this. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. At his last breath, Jesus yields up his spirit and immediately a curtain in the temple is torn. Now, some of us may know this, some of us may not. Inside the temple, there are boxes of where different people can be. If you look at a map, and at the very center of it is the Holy of Holies, where God's unmediated manifest presence dwells. And in that place, people could only go in there once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, to go in and make atonement. And the person had to be like spotless. They had to be without any stains on their clothing, which is why you're going to see in one of the prophets is going to talk about Joshua the high priest goes 
in there, and then he's about to be making atonement, and he looks down, and his, his robes are stained, and so there's just, what's going to happen? What's going to happen here? Because normally what happens is someone goes in there, and they're not clean. They haven't followed what, what God has laid down in the law to do to make atonement. They fall dead in the presence of God. The holiness of God encountering the sinfulness of people. They would actually even put a rope on their leg with a bell on it so that they could periodically like pull on it and like then the person could respond. Like, yeah, I'm still in here. Because they're like, we're not going in there. We're not sending anyone in there. Like if you're dead, we'll just pull you out. The curtain is the curtain that separates the holy of holies from the rest of the assembly where God's manifest presence dwells. And at his last breath, Jesus accomplishes something. And the veil is torn from top to bottom. A symbol of God saying, I will be with my people. God making good on his promise that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. And this is what grace is. We think grace sometimes is this thing of like, I pray to God because I sinned and then God from really far up in heaven maybe throws a lightning bolt of grace kind of like Zeus or maybe he shoots an arrow or he just throws me some grace my way and I'm like, oh, thanks for covering up that little stain I had. No, grace is God's own presence drawing near to us saying, I want to be with you. It is not an ethereal thing. It's not, it's, not some, it's not some cleaning product that just takes out a stain. It is God's own presence covering our sin, removing it from us, coming to be with us. The veil is torn and he comes to be with us. And now God's presence is for all of mankind. And not only that, not only that, like at his last breath, that happens but there's an earthquake, and then rocks split, and then dead people are raised to life. Like, okay, I want you to understand what's going on. Matthew's telling the entire story of, of the resurrect, of the Christ's death, and he's going, now at the sixth hour, this happened, and then three hours later, this happened, and then he breathes his last, and then the temple veil is torn. And then Matthew here, he seems to break the very confines of his time-based narrative. And he says, and after the resurrection, these people, like they were walking around the city and just talking. He's saying, okay, I can't, I can't help. I know right now I'm talking about his cross and I'm talking about his death, but this changes everything. This right here changes everything. It means all sin is dealt with. And it means that death is defeated. And it means that everything sad is becoming untrue. But I'll let Britt have the rest of that resurrection stuff next week. So, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. These are immortal words. These words will never die. And the awe and the wonder of the cross is that 
the Son of God is also the Lamb of God, who is the firstborn Son, who himself is the true temple, who is the suffering servant, who is the Messiah, the true King of Israel, the way, the truth, and the life, the faithful one and the true one. Every storyline in the Bible all converges on the cross and it says it only ever always has been about Jesus. It's him. He's the prophet. He's he's God. He's the true king. He's the great high priest. It's him. And have ever you seen such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown than as of Christ on the cross? Breathtaking love. God saving sinners. Sacrifice that we might live. Now turn, turn to verse 55 because I want us to see something that I think the Lord showed me in the study and it's a little bit of a side thing but it, it's really important. I think the Lord has something for us in it. There are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So what I love here is like, I love that at the central event of all of history, let alone just the Bible, all of history, the Holy Spirit chose to include and make us know, hey, and there were all these women here. There were all these women here. And we see in these different women, we see a few things. We see Mary. Mary, she's just lost her son. Then, and then we see in Mary Magdalene, we don't, we don't know, a t- we know a decent amount about her, but one thing, one thing we for sure know is, uh, it says in John that Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her, uh, which I, I'm not sure of all the details before that, but would lead me to believe there's, there's probably some pretty dark stuff back there. Some stuff probably that was done to her. Some stuff she she did as a result also. Who had seven demons come out of her. And then, and then we see, we know the mother of the sons of Zebedee is Salome. Uh, that's who we know she is from putting gospels together. Uh, and Salome, who's she? She's just like the classic helicopter mom, right? Like she's just over her kids. She's asking Jesus like, hey, can I ask you a favor? Can you make my can my sons be your favorite, right? She's the one, she's the one who honestly thinks that if she just controls her kid's life enough, maybe, maybe something in her will be saved. Maybe she'll be kind of validated in some of that. And the cross, it's for every single one of them. The cross says to Mary, your son is going to raise from the dead. There is a resurrection coming. 
So it's the Mary Magdalene. Jesus, Jesus he, didn't, he didn't only suffer for us. Do you know Jesus actually suffered with us? That because he was besought with weaknesses, because he died on the cross, he knows what it's like. And he suffers with, he suffers with you. That he, he died for those who have been marginalized and victimized. Like, especially the last couple of weeks have been crazy. Like, so many people coming forward. This happened to me. I was abused in this way. This is what happened. The cross is for them, too. Not only removes the sins that we've done, it's, it removes the sins that have been done to us. And then we see in Salome, in Salome, the cross says to her, hey, you can loosen your grip. I have this under control. I, I can work all things for good. I know you're wondering if they'll ever come back to the Lord. I'm trustworthy and I'm good. You can trust me. I have better plans for them than you do. We can trust him. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the new which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So I want to I want to tease something out from verse 16. This is how we'll end today, but Verse 60, right before it's going to say, so Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and then he laid it in his own tomb. He lays the body of Jesus wrapped in white in his own tomb. The gospel of Jesus Christ is is his, his perfect life merited to us, all of his righteousness, that he died a death in our place. The death we should have died, he died. And that by faith, all those things are true of us and that we will never truly die again. We will rise with him. That's the good news. That's the historical truth. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Christ, isn't, it's not just that. It is that Christ died that you might die with him that he now lives, that you would live again with him. And I think in this picture of Jesus being laid in another man's tomb, we see that his death was actually our death too. Like it was really for you. This means the truest thing about us, we who have put our faith in Christ is no longer our sin. And it's not our own story. It's not the thing we wake up and we just immediately think of. And that informs how we feel and how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world. But the truest thing about us is the story of God. That, as it says in Colossians 3, that you have died. 
If you're a Christian, you died. The old you has died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who appeared, when Christ who is your life, your life, your mistakes, your good things, your achievements, all those, when you came to Christ, those died. And you don't cease to be you, but all those things that you derived every ounce of meaning and significance from, your meaning and significance and identity are now wrapped up in Christ and what he has done for you. He is your life. Then, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this means that the cross is everything to us. Like you don't move past the cross. You don't move past it. It is absolutely everything for us. So if you're, are you sick of your own sin in your life and you just, you just wish you could be clean and maybe you tell yourself, man, two months, two months away from that and then, then I can feel okay. Then I'll be all right. Then I can be clean. Like, but I don't know how to do this. I'm calling you to something completely else. You need to be born again. You need by the spirit to be born again and put your trust in Christ and what he has done. Or are you feeling like right now, like we're going to head into worship? We're going to head into our second set of worship? Are you feeling like I, I can worship right now? Like I had a pretty good week. Like I, I think I can draw near to God. I'm calling you like, hey, lay that down. You can worship God. You can come near to him, but it's because of what Christ has done. So it doesn't matter how you came in here, whether you just barely limped in here knowing, knowing what you've done this past week or whether you thought you could strut in here because you've been having a pretty righteous life recently, lay that down and trust only in the cross. Or are you a Christian who honestly, you've, you've been kind of embittered, been embittered by God. You, you thought he'd come through in a way, or you thought he'd save your marriage, or you, you thought he would do something. And you're, strugg- you're struggling to believe. It's not like it's this, it's this violent hatred you have, but you're just struggling to believe it. Like, is he really in control? Is he really good? Let me tell you, Jesus is both the God who suffered for us and suffers with us. And we can know, looking at the cross, he is good and he is in control. And so let us all put our hope and our trust and our faith in the cross. But what... (laughs) What does, that, what does that even mean? Like, what do you, what do you mean, put my faith in the cross? What, what is faith? What is faith? Because it's one of those words that we can, like, just throw around all the time and, oh, I have faith. Oh, yeah, I have faith. Faith be blessed. All kinds of things. What does that actually mean? Uh, well, Jesus, throughout the scriptures, is seen uh, and named as a bridegroom. Jesus is seen throughout the scriptures as a bridegroom. And he calls his bride the church. The church is called his bride. Uh, and so if you've ever seen two people fall in love, then in God's good design, this is like what should happen. Like the man should in love decide, I am going to lay down my life for this woman, right? I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to lay down my life for the woman. So like 
he'll drive like crazy distances through LA traffic at rush hour, right? Like I saw this card one time. It's like, I would, I would drive the 405 at rush hour for you. Um, like he's, he's, going to, he's going to stay up way later than he's ever, nor- ever used to. He's going to get up. His friends are going to be like, bro, you need to get some sleep. Like he's going to, he's going to spend money. He's going to just go all out doing anything just to see this girl. And he's not going to be able to stop thinking about her. Like that, this is the guy. And then the girl, hopefully at some point she's like, she sees that and she sees he laid down his life. And she says, okay, I see that and I trust you. Like I'll follow, like I know you're for me. And so I'll follow you. I'll do that. And it's like all from the outside, it's almost, it's just kind of crazy. You're like, man, you should just get more sleep and you should like, what's going on? But that, that is like what faith is when you see the love of Christ on the cross, faith is saying, I see that love. And so you say, my life is yours. And I'll follow you anywhere. And the life, the life I knew before, it's, it's like, it's dead. And with every fiber of my being and every ounce of oxygen I can suck in, I will praise you and I will tell everyone about you because I've never seen a love like this and I trust you. So we're going to celebrate. Pastor I love once said like, we're going to celebrate our own funerals that we have been crucified with Christ that we have the assurance of the resurrection, a love that just, it takes our breath away. A love that assures us regardless of our marital status, that we are married to the bridegroom who will never leave us or forsake us. A love that died for us at our worst, who is coming again to make all things right. And that is the true story. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would just cause praise to erupt from our souls and our hearts. Lord, I just, I ask whatever, whatever it is, if you've convicted us, we, we need to confess our sin. Would we go to someone on the prayer team? We would go to a friend and say, I just have to be honest about this. I thank you that you already know how messed up we are, that we don't, we don't need to hide it, that your heart is to heal us, to make us new. So Lord, I just ask that all the love and praise and adoration you're worthy of that we would, we would give it to you. We would say, my life is dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Please undo the work of the evil one. Would your Holy Spirit just be poured out now? Pray this all in the name of the Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.